Help us to be able to learn from Your Word. Father, I pray You'd help me as I attempt to preach Your Word, Lord, that You would uh, just use me tonight and that it might be, again, a time of growth for all of us. In Your precious name I pray. Amen. Alright, well we're there in Joshua chapter number 7. And if you remember uh, from Joshua chapter number 6, the children of Israel have now entered into the Promised Land. In the book of Exodus, they came out of Egypt. You've got uh, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all that time is spent in the wilderness. book of Joshua, they've crossed the Jordan River. They've crossed into the Promised Land. They are now beginning to take the land, conquer the land. If you remember chapter 6, they, they took that first battle, the battle at Jericho. And we went through that and taught on that. And we talked about how the children of Israel came in uh, to Jericho and they walked around the city once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, they walked around seven times and then they shouted. Do you remember the priest sounded with the trumpet? They shouted and the walls came down and they came in and they took that first uh, battle in the promised land in Canaan land. They took that first city, Jericho, and they had great victory. Now, the children of Israel in chapter 7 are ready to go to their next battle. They're ready to take their next possession. And that battle is the battle of a city called Ai. A, uh, it's just spelled Ai, exactly how it sounds, Ai. And in this chapter, we learn about the events that took place there and what happened. And what you need to understand is this. Joshua chapter number 7, the, the purpose of this chapter in Scripture... And what God taught not only the children of Israel, but He attempts to teach you and I through Scripture is this. That He he teaches us about the importance that an individual plays in a group. That's what chapter 7 is about. The importance of what an individual does and the role that an individual plays in the group. And what we need to understand today, if you remember in the book of Acts, the Bible tells us that the children of Israel, they were called the church in the wilderness. And now we understand they're no longer in the wilderness, they're in the promised land. But the children of Israel in the Old Testament often represent the church. And these lessons are lessons we can learn about the children of Israel uh, and their things that can be applied to the New Testament church today here in Joshua chapter number 7. So look at verse number 1. The Bible says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing, for Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Verse 2. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. So we see there Joshua sends spies, just like he did for Jericho. He sends spies to the city of Ai. He says, Go view the city and go report back and tell us what's going on. Look at verse 3. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, notice what they said, let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai. And make not all the people go labor hither, for they are but few. So he sends the spies to Ai, they come back, and here's what they say to Joshua. They say, Joshua, Ai is a small city. It's a small town. It's not anything like Jericho was. He said, don't worry, let's not send everybody to fight. Just send a small group of people. They'll be able to handle it. They'll be able to take care of it. He said, they said, send two or three thousand soldiers and they'll be able to fight. He said, they said, don't make all the people labor. He said, 
well, what's the problem with that? Well, there's a few things you need to understand and some interesting things there. Go to uh, the book of Numbers uh, towards the, uh, let's see, left there in your, in your Bible. Uh, right before the book of Joshua, you've got the book of Deuteronomy. And right before Deuteronomy, you've got the book of Numbers. Go to Numbers chapter number 1. Now, the book of Numbers, there's a lot of uh, good stories and doctrines in there. But primarily, the purpose of the book of Numbers was uh, to number the children of Israel. To take a census of the children of Israel. Hence the name Numbers. And in Numbers chapter number 1, if you look at verse number 45, the Bible says in Numbers chapter 1 verse 45, here's what's interesting about the children of Israel. This is the census that Moses took of the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. And in Numbers chapter number 1, verse number 45, the Bible says, So were all those that were numbered of the children of Israel by the house of their fathers. Notice, they're going to give us a number of these people. From 20 years old and upward, okay? So they had to be 20 years old and above. And, and by the way, in the Old Testament, a man was considered uh, uh, an adult that could go off to war at the age of 20 years old. Not 18 like in America. But it says, from 20 years old and upward, all that were able, notice, to go forth to war in Israel. So they took a number of all the men that were 20 years old and up and were physically able to go to war. Now look at how many there was, verse 46. And all they that were numbered were 600,000 and 3,550. That's quite a group, isn't it? 603,550, you go back to Joshua chapter 7, men of war, men that are 20 years old and up, men that are physically able to go and fight a battle. That is the army that the children of Israel had going into the promised land. That is the army that Joshua now heads up, 603,550 uh, men. And yet, how many did they want to send to go fight an AI? Two or three thousand. Isn't that interesting? Two to three thousand? Compared to six hundred over six hundred thousand? They could send three thousand and have six hundred thousand soldiers just sitting at home doing nothing. Now you say, well, what, what's interesting? Well, you know, I, I did a little math for you. And three thousand, that's what they ended up sending was three thousand soldiers. 3,000 of 603, 550,000 is less than half a 1% uh, of the soldiers that are available to go. Exactly, it's 0.49% of the soldiers that had the ability to go, that had the ability to fight, that were able to go. They didn't say, you said, well, what can we learn from this? Here's what we can learn. Number one, the individual's participation affects the group. The individual's participation affects the group. You say, Pastor Jimenez, what do you mean by that? Here's what we mean. Everyone should be involved in the battle. When, the, when God took them into the promised land, He said, you're going to go in and fight the land. God had a plan that every single person, every single soldier would go to fight the war. But when Joshua sends the spies to Ai, they come back. Now you got to understand, they're a little puffed up. They're a little excited. They're a little maybe overconfident because they just won this great battle in Jericho. And they come back and they say, hey, Ai's not that big. Ai's not that impressive. Ai doesn't have big walls like Jericho did. Don't worry about sending everybody. Notice what they said. Look at verse 3. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up uh, and smite Ai and make not all the people to labor hither, for they are but few. They said, not everybody has to get involved. 
just send a few people. See, what you need to understand is, what made the children of Israel strong, was that the children of Israel together, as a congregation, as a group, they all together went off and fought the battles. But when they got this mentality, just let a few people take care of it, they lost. Notice what happened. Are you there in chapter 7? Look at verse 4. So there went up hither of the people about 3,000 men. And they fled before the men of Ai. So they were able to fight this land, and they lose. They're turning around, they're retreating, they're, 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 they're running away. Look at verse 5. And the men of Ai smote of them about 36 men. 36 men died that day of the children of Israel. Because they sent 3,000 soldiers, when they had 600,000 soldiers sitting at home, to fight what they thought would be an easy battle. Look at verse 5 again. And the men of Ai smote about three and thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate, even unto Shebarim, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. The children of Israel's strength was not found in sending the best of the best, in sending their navy seals or their, 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 you know, just elite fighting force, the children of Israel's strength was found in the fact that they all together in the power of God would go and fight the battle, everyone, not just a few. Go with me, keep your finger there in Joshua chapter 7, go to the book of Acts real quickly. Acts chapter number 1. Acts chapter number 1. In the book of Acts, uh, in the New Testament there, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. There's a fifth book in the New Testament. Acts chapter number 1. And what you need to understand is what makes a strong church is the same thing that makes a strong nation, is the same thing that makes a strong military. It is unity. And if you and I think that our church is going to be able to accomplish and win the battles and fight the battles that God has for us and we think that just a few people can do the work and let everybody else stay home and do nothing and just let a few people go out into the trenches and let a few people... If that's your idea, I'm here to tell you, we're going we're gonna to lose every time. The strength of a church, the strength of an army, the strength of an organization comes when everybody comes together and does, works together and accomplishes something for the cause of Christ. If you're there in Acts chapter number 1, if you ever want to just learn about an exciting church, learn about a church that's in revival, learn about a church that's something, read the book of Acts. Books of Acts is that tells us the story of the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch and how they did great things. But I want you to notice the key to their success was there was this. Are you there in Acts chapter one? Look at verse fourteen. Acts one fourteen. The Bible says, "And these all continued with one accord." I want you to notice that those words, one accord. That means they were in the in, in harmony together. That means they were working together. It says, notice what it says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Skip down to, or go to chapter number 2, look at verse 1. Right before the day of Pentecost, the great day of Pentecost happens and over 3,000 people are saved and baptized. The Bible tells us in, in Acts chapter 2 verse 1, it says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all, notice, they were all with one accord in one place. Do you see that? Skip down to verse number 46, same chapter. Verse number 46, the Bible says, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread 
from house to house that eat their meat with gladness and, notice this, singleness of heart. Referring to the fact that they were united in their hearts. They were of one accord. Go to Acts chapter number 5, look at verse 12. Acts chapter number 5, verse 12. Just flip over a few pages. Acts 5, 12, the Bible says, And by the hand of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Go to Acts chapter number 15, verse number 25. Acts chapter number 15, verse number 25. The Bible says in Acts 15, 25, it says, It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And on and on you can go in the scriptures and find often the reference to the fact that there ought to be unity in the house of God. That there ought to be like-minded observing the same rule and working together. And what I'm trying to tell you is this. The individual's participation is very important when it comes to the group. When they were to win the battle, they didn't need 2,000. They didn't need 3,000. They needed all 600,000 plus to go out and fight the battle. And in the church, it's the same thing. Without everyone's involvement, we will never fully accomplish what we're supposed to do. You understand that? Without everyone's involvement in the church... We will not be able to accomplish everything that God has for you. Everything that God has for us. I, used, I, I grew up listening to pastors say, and I understand what they were saying, and I'm not, um, I'm not saying they're bad people saying this, but they used to you know, get up on a Sunday night and preach and say, you know, you want to quit this church and you want to leave, and, and, and everyone's replaceable. You know, and I understand what they mean by that. Because sometimes people get this attitude where like, well, if I, if I wasn't around here, nothing would get done. Look, everyone's replaceable in the sense that we'll continue without you. We understand that. But look, the Bible calls the church the body of Christ. He calls every single one of us the members. We are. That word members is a reference to to body parts. You ever heard of someone being dismembered? And he says, you are a member of the church of the body of Christ. Hey, you are a body part of this body. And if I lose my pinky, or I lose my hand, or I lose my foot, I may be able to continue, and I may be able to survive, and I may be able to live without you, but guess what? I won't be able to accomplish everything that I could have accomplished. It won't be as easy. It won't be as easy for me to work without a right arm. Could I work without a right arm? Could I survive without a right arm? Of course I could. But God has brought you here. And God brought you here for a reason. He said, well, if I leave, it'll go on without you. Yeah, but it may be a little handicap. We'll go on without you, but it may be a little handicap. See, without everyone's involvement, we will never fully accomplish what we're supposed to accomplish. You know, just think about this practically. Think, Think about just the church atmosphere. Now, real quickly, just you're there in Acts. Go to Matthew, just real quick. Matthew chapter number 18. Are you guys cold? Is it cold in here? Are you comfortable? Okay, I'm comfortable. But I just want to make sure you're comfortable. Matthew chapter number 18. You know, just think, let me give you a few things to practically think about. Think about, just think about the atmosphere. Is it more exciting on a Sunday morning, or on a Sunday night, or on a Wednesday night for that matter, if the church service, if you, when you walk in, the music's playing, People are drinking coffee, having donuts, there's a lot of commotion, people are talking. The service starts, everybody sits down, the place is full, everybody's singing out, like this morning. And this morning was exciting. Onward, Christian soldier. You're singing like a great choir this morning. You say, well, is that exciting? Yeah, it's very exciting. The atmosphere is exciting. 
Now, it's more exciting when you come in, you know, you're five minutes late, there's three people here, you sit down, you know, and we're singing, Onward, Christian soldiers. Now, now, please, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, and I want you to see this. Are you there in Matthew chapter 18? Look at verse 20, because I really believe this. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. The Bible says this, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You ever walk into church on a Wednesday night and it's, and, and it's me and my family and you? Let me tell you something. The Bible says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. You don't need a big crowd to meet with God. You don't need a big crowd to hear from God. You, you say, We're only two. Somebody, I remember one time, uh, my wife and I first started the church. Sometimes we'd have services where it was just our family and one other person. You know, I remember a uh, family started coming with a child and, and they came... They, they, they came, and it was just my family and their family. And the child said, Pastor, I've got a question for you. If nobody else comes, because they're the only ones there. He said, if nobody else comes, are we still having church? I'm thinking to myself, you came. <laughs> you know, but, here, but you know, I'll tell you the honest truth. We never, we never dealt with it. But if we would have ever had a service where no one came, and we almost did one time. I'll tell you the story. It's a funny story now. <laughs> but if we would have ever had a service where it was just... Me and my wife and my children. You say, what would you have done, Pastor? We would have opened our songbooks. We would have sang out. We would have read the entire chapter. I would have preached. You say, why? Because where two or three are gathered, God is there. Amen. So don't get, you know, you say, well, nobody's coming to church. Nobody, hey, look, churches are, a lot of times they're like restaurants. Sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. You just go on with it. Amen. But the atmosphere is more exciting when everyone's here. Amen. You understand what I'm saying? When a first-time visitor walks in, and a lot of people are smiling, and a lot of people are talking, and people are walking up to them and say, man, we're glad you're here, and they, and they come in, and they sing, and it's exciting, hey! You know, it's just not the same when the visitor walks in, there's three people. Now thank God for the three people, and I'm not discrediting the three people. And, 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 and if this church falls apart, if everybody gets mad at the preaching and leaves, and all I've got left is my wife and my kids, guess what? I'll preach to my wife and my kids. So don't get, you know, get so wrapped up in this idea that well, people aren't here, and people aren't here. Don't worry about that. What I'm here to tell you is, when you're here, it's more exciting. When you're part of the group, the atmosphere is better. When you're here, people, people sing louder, and, and they just get more excited about the things of God. Think about our soul winning. We have a big goal at Verity Baptist Church. I want to preach the gospel. We want to fill up that whole map blue. We want to preach the gospel to every person in the city of Sacramento and the, in, the, in the surrounding area. And I, and I don't know, this may surprise you, but when there's three of us out, or when there's 12 of us, you know, if there's three of us out, we'll do something. But when there's 12 of us out, guess what? We'll do a lot more. When there's more people out, we'll accomplish more. When there's more people out, we'll talk to more people. We'll preach to more people. We'll have more converts. It's just a fact. And you've got to understand this, because churches get this idea. They say, well, I come to church, and I'm here, and I'm go, but let someone else do that soul winning. And let someone else come on Wednesday night. And let someone else come on Sunday night. And let, look, we can't develop this attitude that, oh, let two or three thousand take care of it, and leave the six hundred thousand at home. No, we all have to unite together in one accord, in one mind, for the striving together for the faith of the gospel. Amen. Why? Because that's what God has called us to do. Amen. And you say, well, we'll do it without them. We'll do it without them, but we'll never be as effective. What we learn from the children of Israel in Joshua is that the effect of the individual and their participation in the group affects them. If 600,000 men would have gone down to Ai, 32 people wouldn't have died. 
If 600,000 men would have gone down to Ai, 32 widows wouldn't have been mourning for their husbands. You understand that? If 600,000 people would have gone down to Ai, there would have been a whole lot of children that wouldn't have been crying because daddy didn't come home that night. If the whole group would have gone down. But because they said, only send a few, only let a few, only let. I said it this morning, and let me just say it again. You know, when it comes to churches in any organization, there's the 80-20 rule. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And 80% of the people do nothing. And I'm thankful for the 80%. And I'm, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad. Maybe you're there, but you ought to consider stepping in and serving and doing and accomplishing and doing something. You know, let, let me, you know, it's still just, it's just Sunday night. Can we be pretty uh, practical? Think about this. The 80-20 rule uh, also accounts for finances. You know that in a church, 20% of the people finance 80% of the work? It's just the truth. I don't know if many of you think about this, but these lights don't pay themselves. <laughs> these, everybody always talks about, man, these ladies' activities are so wonderful, they're so great, we did this and we did that. Well, that, that soap and that pizza and, and that ladies' tea and all those beautiful things you get to do, those things don't just, you know, nobody donates that. Somebody has to pay for that. And, and here's what's interesting about tithing. And, and, and I want to talk about it because it's in the text. You go back to Joshua chapter 7. Here's what's interesting about tithing. I believe, you know that churches are constantly struggling financially. I believe that God has provided the finances that every church needs to survive. I believe that if a church is supposed to have a full-time pastor that can minister to them in full-time capacity, I believe that God has already provided the finances for that church to be able to do that. I believe that if God wants us to support a missionary to go out and preach the gospel in a foreign country, I believe that God provides those finances for us to do that. You say, well, why don't we do that? Because God provides those finances through the people. You know, I'm convinced of this. If 100% of Christians tithed, we would have all the money in the world we needed to reach the gospel, to go out and preach the gospel, to send missionaries to start churches. So well, why does that mean that? Because most people don't tithe. In fact, about only 20% of people tithe. You understand what I'm saying? It's, not, it, it, it's got to be an entire group effort if it's going to be done. And, and, it, and it goes back to uh, Joshua chapter 7 because that's what the whole story about Achan, which we want, we're going to get into here in a second, is all about. Here's what you need to understand. Okay, The tithe, oftentimes in Scripture, is called the first fruit offering. You, ever heard, you, you may have read that before if you ever read the Old Testament. The tithe is not only 10%. And by the way, God is not like the government. Okay? He only charges you a percentage of what you make. If you make more, He doesn't charge you more. Like the U.S. government. Sometimes people say, well, I can't afford to tithe. Look, everyone can afford to tithe. Because if you made $1,000 this week, then, then you, gotta, you say, i got to give 10% of that. Yeah, uh, $100? Yeah, but you made 1000 Well, I didn't make 1000 I only made 100 this week. Well, guess what? You only have to put 10 bucks in. It's a percentage. God doesn't expect you to put more than you can afford. He expects you to be obedient. Amen. And He says, he, he, he has already provided. But here's what you're going to say. It's the first fruits. So when you tithe, you're not only supposed to give 10%, you're supposed to give the first 10%. What that means, because here's what a lot of Christians do. They, they'll say, well I would tithe if, if you know, I'm going to pay my mortgage, I'm going to pay my rent, I'm going to pay my smut, I'm going to pay this, and if I've got anything left over, then I'll give it to God. That's not how it works. And all things that He should have the preeminence. 
You pay God first. That was the first fruit. And by the way, that was the picture here in, in, in the children of Israel. When they went into the promised land, go to Joshua chapter 6. I want you to see this. Joshua chapter 6, look at verse 18. Look what the Bible says. Well, let's begin reading because I want you to get the context. Look at verse number 7. Uh, let's see, where do I want you to read? 16. Now remember, this is Jericho. The Bible says, And it came to pass at the seventh time. Remember, they walked around the city seven on the seventh day. They walked around it seven times, right? It says, And it came to pass at the seventh time. So, they're on their seventh lap around the city upon the seventh day. Look what it says. When the priest blew the trumpet, Joshua said unto the people, notice what he said, Shout! But, but he gives them some instructions before the walls come down. He says, For the Lord hath given you the city, look at verse 17, And the city shall be accursed, notice that word, even it and all that are therein, to the Lord only, Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent, verse 18, and ye, notice what he says to the people, in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. Notice, Joshua told the people, do not take anything from Jericho. He said, it's all a curse to you. Look at verse 19. But all the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and iron are consecrated. That's talking about making it holy. Look what it says. Are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. I don't want you to miss that. The children of Israel were instructed. Here's what God said. God said, when you go in and you possess the land, He said, that first battle, that first victory, He said, I don't want you to take any of their stuff. He said, all of that belongs to God. They were to offer everything. Because here's what you, you say, well, well, why's the big deal? Here's what you understand. The way these armies survived is because they would win a battle, and then they would spoil, they would take from the people they beat. They would take their gold and stuff. That's how they financed themselves. But God told the children of Israel, He said that first battle, Jericho, He says, all of that belongs to me. You know what they were supposed to, what they were doing? Is they were tithing. The first fruits. From then on, every other battle, Ai, and every other battle they were fighting, God said, you can have all the money. He said, when you take, when you go to Ai and you win that battle, any gold, any silver, any servants, anything is there. You take that and you, you divide it amongst yourselves and you pay yourself. And, and these people, they're going to make a lot of money by going in and, and, and taking over uh, Ai and taking over that city. And as they won these battles, they were allowed to keep that money. But the first battle, that first fruit offering belonged to God. They were supposed to offer it to God. Look at verse 1 of Joshua chapter 7. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing. You see that? He stole from God. He took something out of Jericho. What was the result? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. See, he, if he would have just waited to the next battle, Ai, he could have took whatever he wanted. But because he was greedy... And he just saw these things in Jericho and he coveted them and he wanted them. God's anger was kindled upon the children of Israel. I said, number one, I want you to... And, that, and, it, goes, and it goes back to the same thing. You know, you ought, to, you, you ought not steal from God. 
Bible says in the book of Malachi, it says, Will a man rob God? He said, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You need to just understand that the tithe does not belong to you, it belongs to God. Amen. I heard somebody tell a story, and, and people say, well, I don't think you should preach on finances. Well, when you start a church, you don't preach on finances. It's in the Bible. I heard somebody say this. They were telling a story about, they had a nephew. And they took that nephew to a, to, to a, a baseball game. And the nephew uh, said, uh, you know, is the, the middle of the innings there. And the nephew said, oh, I, I, I'd like to get uh, uh, candy from the little store there. So the uncle took, opened up his wallet and took some money out and gave it to his nephew. And watched his nephew as he walked a few feet over. And he, bought, he came back with a bag of Skittles. And the boy had the Skittles open. And, you know, his hands were yellow and red and green. And his lips were... And he's eating these Skittles. And the uncle's watching his nephew eat these Skittles. And it kind of made him a little, you know, have a little bit of a sweet tooth. He's like, man, he seems like he's enjoying those. And, uh, and the uncle says to the boy, he says, could I have one? And the boy looks down and he says, well, I've only got a few left. I don't think so. And the uncle immediately thought to himself, listen, I'm the one that gave you the money. <laughs> Get those skittles. But see, obviously that's how you and I are with God's time. God says, hey, look, I'm going to give you, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to make sure you're taken care of, and all I want you to give back is 10%. See, the, the purpose of the tithe, there's two purposes of the tithe. Number one is the finance of church. Practically. But number two, the tithe is acknowledging to God. When you pay God His tithe, what you're doing is you're acknowledging to God that God has taken care of me. God provided for me, and I'm acknowledging that by returning what He asked. But when you take that, you're taking of the accursed thing. God said, give me the first fruits. That's what belongs to me. He said, don't take anything from Jericho. God said, that's fine. You can have anything you want from Ai, and you can have anything you want from all the other places, but Jericho belongs to me. You acknowledge me with the first victory. That's what God was saying. And Achan took from Jericho, and he stole from God. I said, number one, we learn from this chapter the individual, or the importance of the individual upon the group. But number two, I want you to see this. We see... The individuals, we not only see the individual's participation, how that affects the group. When the entire group did not go to win the battle, they lost the battle. But number two, we see the individual's sin affect the group. We saw there that, that Achan stole from God. Are you there in Joshua chapter 7? Look at verse 6. Joshua chapter number 7, verse 6. The Bible says, And Joshua rent his clothes. When the children of Israel came back, and they were, well look at the last part of verse 5, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. They got sad and they got depressed and they said, oh man, what happened here? You know, we won Jericho and that was a big battle and now we went to Ai and that was a little small town and now, now we lost and 32 people are dead and they got scared and afraid. And it shook the leader, Joshua, look at verse 6. And Joshua rent his clothes. That word rent means he, he literally tore his clothes off. And that's what the custom was in, that, in those days of culture. When you mourned, you would rent your clothes. A lot of times you put ashes on your head. You say, why did they do that? I don't know. That's just what they did back then. It says, and Joshua rent his clothes and fell on the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord. Remember, the ark of the Lord represents the presence of God. Until even tide. So when Joshua heard that, that they lost the battle, he rips his clothes off, he falls on his face, prostrate to the ground before the presence of God, the ark of the Lord, until the evening, weeping and praying. Look what it says. He and the elders of Israel 
and put dust upon their heads. These people are praying. Look at verse 7. And Joshua said, it's interesting, the first thing that Joshua does is he immediately questions himself. Look what it says. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Look what he says. Notice this. Don't miss the last part of verse 7. Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. You know what he just said? He said, we should have never came to Canaan. He said, we should have never crossed the Jordan River. He said, we should have never taken Jericho. We should have just been content on the other side of Jordan. And he immediately questions whether what he's doing is right. Look, you need to understand, sometimes you're going to have setbacks. Sometimes you're going to plan to do something. And it's not going to go exactly how you think it should go. Just realize, just because you have a setback, doesn't mean you were wrong in what you were doing. Can I give you a practical example? Here's a real practical example for you. You, can, you know that you can have a church that on Sunday morning you have 42 in church when you have 55 chairs out or 50 chairs out. And the next Sunday you have 47 in church when you have 50 chairs out. And the next Sunday you have 49 in church when you have 50 chairs out. And the next Sunday you have 51 in church when you have 50 chairs out. And people are coming up to you and saying, Pastor, we need to take this wall down and we're not fitting it and people are uncomfortable and this and that. And you know how you can take that wall down and expand the auditorium and the next Sunday have 33 people in church? <laughs> you don't think that could happen? What do you do? We should have never taken that wall down. No, just because you have a setback doesn't mean you did the wrong thing. You say, well, why does that happen? I don't know why that happens. People get sick, they go out of town. I think sometimes people have an itch, you know. They don't do it on purpose, but they think to themselves, oh, the church is growing, they just took the wall down, let's not go. <laughs> I don't know. But what I'm saying is sometimes you have a setback. You just move on. You don't doubt God. Because the next week you'll have 33, and the next week you have 36, the next week you have 42, and the next week you may have 20. I don't know. You just go off. You just don't question yourself. When you know God is moving, you just go with it. Joshua said, we should have been content on the other side, Jordan. No, Joshua. It's okay. But here's what you also learn. Look at verse 8. Joshua's praying. It says, O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it, and shall environ us round, and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? He is praying. He is in just turmoil, and he's reaching out to God. And it's very interesting. Because look at verse 10. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Wherefore liest thou upon thy face? Isn't that a very interesting response from God? Joshua is pouring his heart out on his face to the ground before the Ark of the Covenant, saying, God, what are you doing? Why did we do this? Why did we cross the Jordan? And God, this is what God says to Joshua. Why are you praying? Interesting. You say, are you minimizing prayer? I'm not minimizing prayer. What you need to understand is sometimes there is a time to pray, and sometimes there is a time to get up and take action. Amen. Joshua was on his face praying. And God said, look at verse 10. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Wherefore lies thou upon thy face? 
He said, Joshua said, God said to Joshua, look, you don't need to be praying right now, Joshua. Here's the problem. Look at verse 11. Israel have sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and disassembled, and dissembled also. They have put it even among their own stuff. This is what God said. He said, Joshua, I don't need you to pray about this. I don't need you to fast about this. I don't need you to think about this. I need you to stand up and take care of business. There is sin in the camp. And you need to realize that sometimes you get a setback. And you say, well, what do I do? Spend my time praying about it and crying about it. Sometimes there is a time to pray and cry. Sometimes there's a time to stand up and take care of business. Sometimes it's just sin in your life that is holding you back. Sometimes it's just sin in the camp that is withholding God's blessing from your life. And I'm here to tell you that you can have you can you can pray all the hours in the world. And if there's sin in your life that is keeping God's blessing from from your life. It's not going to do anything. You just need to get the sin out of your life. Now here's what's interesting about the children of Israel. Who stole from God? One man, Achan. But as far as God was concerned, all the children of Israel had sinned against him. Look at verse 11 again. Notice what he says. Does it say Achan had sinned? No. Israel had sinned. See, if I'm in sin or you're in sin, God isn't going to look down at us and say, Pastor Roger Jimenez has sinned. He'll say, Verity Baptist Church has sinned. say, why is that? Because the sin of an individual affects the whole group. Achan sinned, but as far as God was concerned, they'd all sinned. Look at verse 11. Israel have sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled. Also they have put it even among their own stuff. Look at verse 1 in Joshua chapter 7. Look what it says. But the children of Israel committed a trespass and the accursed thing. As far as God was concerned, all the entire nation had done the sin. Look what it says. For, that word for means because, because Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, uh, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against, not Achan, the children of Israel. All of them. So what can we learn from that? Your sin affects the entire group. Your sin, people have this idea, well my sin only affects me. Sin never only affects you, it always affects others. Well, people say, well, I, I have a drinking problem and, and that's just my own issue and that's between me and God and that only affects me. No, it doesn't. It affects your wife. It affects your children. It affects your neighbors. It affects the people. Sin, you are not an island. Your life has a, 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 a control over other people. It truly does. You affect other people. And when Achan decided to sin, he made it so God's blessing would not be upon the entire congregation. Sometimes I wonder, is the reason that Verity Baptist Church maybe isn't succeeding like it should because of your sin or my sin or one individual sin that God is not happy about? And interesting. The individual sin affects the group. One person's sin affected all the people. 
Look at verse 11. You see what you say, well, what was his sin? What was his sin exactly? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have taken of the accursed thing, and have stolen. You see, they, Achan stole from God. He took what belonged to God. He took God's tithe. But not only that, look at this. And dissembled. You know what that word dissemble means? It means to hide under, and we'll see how that fits perfectly. But it means to put a false appearance. The sin of Achan was that he was acting like something he wasn't. When all the children of Israel were saying, we love God and we're for God and, and God's going to do this, Achan was right there with them. Yeah, we're for God. While secretly he's stealing from God. He was a fake. He was a hypocrite. He was putting up a false appearance. And here's the interesting thing. Achan couldn't even enjoy his sin. Look at verse 13. This is what God says to Joshua. Ah, Sanctify the people and say, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until ye take away the accursed thing from among you. God said, I will not allow you to win the next battle until you take care of this sin issue in, in, in the congregation. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 14. In the morning, therefore, ye shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord taketh shall come according to the families thereof. And the family which the Lord shall take shall come by households. And the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. And it shall be that he that is taken with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire. He and all that he hath, because he hath transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he hath wrought folly in Israel. And Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah. And he, what they're doing is they're narrowing it down. So they're going by tribe Judah. And then when they get all of Judah there, it says, and he took the family of the Sarhites. So now they have a specific family in Judah. And he brought the family of the Sarhites man by man. And Zabdi was taken. So now they've got a specific man's family. And he brought his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of the tribe of Judah, was taken. So God said, he's the issue. He's the problem right here, Achan. Now I want you to notice verse 19. Because it's very interesting to me how Joshua dealt with this matter. Joshua's very kind in dealing with sin. It's interesting. Look at verse 19. And Joshua said unto Achan, My son. Notice he didn't say unto Achan, What's your problem? Why did you mess this up? And we had things going well. Look at me. You know, you messed everything up. No, he didn't say that. And Joshua said to Achan, You can almost just hear the grace and the love in Joshua's voice. My son, give I pray thee glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession unto him and tell me now what thou hast done, hide it not from me. You know, the toughest thing to do somebody is to ask them, hey, can you just confess your sin? No, the number one reason why people don't get saved is they're not willing to confess their sin. They want to hide it. They want to hide it under uh, a tent. They want to, to put up a front. And look, you can, you can fool Joshua and you can fool the children of Israel and you can fool Pastor Jimenez and you can fool every single one of us. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because the one person you cannot fool is God. Amen. And He's the one person that can do something about it. I don't understand this, this idea that we've got to put up a front for each other. God sees your heart. God knows your motives. God sees you when no one else sees you. God sees you. And Achan, he hid his stuff and he took it and no one knew but God knew. And that's all that matters. 
Look at verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment. Babylonish is, is, is uh, a nation there, the nation of Babylon, a very worldly nation, similar to the nation of Egypt, represents the world. Here's, here's why man had to die. Because he saw clothes and liked them. Look what it says. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold and 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent, the silver and the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran into the tent, and behold, it was hid in his tent and the silver under it. He sold out the blessing of God for clothes. He sold out the blessing of God for money. I don't know about you, but I'd much rather have the blessing of God than, you know, one of the, let me just be real blunt with you. One of the main reasons ladies get upset at Verity Baptist Church and our style, our style of preaching is because when we start preaching on what the Bible says, that, and by the way, we don't pick on ladies, we, pick, we preach for this for men also, just men don't seem to care about it as much. But we start preaching about what the Bible says of how a lady ought to dress, and the Bible talks a lot about that. Let me just cue you in. The Bible talks a lot about everything. And God tells ladies how they ought to dress, they ought to be modest, they ought to be this, they ought to be that. And we show it straight from the Bible. And they get upset and say, you're not going to... And look, that's fine with me. You do what you want. I'm just going to preach God's word. But here's what's interesting to me. People allow clothing to be the reason that God can't bless them. I'm not going to pay my tithe. You really going to allow ten bucks? Because usually it's the guy that made only hundred dollars that's complaining about it. <laughs> You know, ten dollars, or a hundred dollars, or a thousand dollars, or a hundred thousand dollars, come between you and God. It's not worth it. One day you're going to die, and guess what? You can't take that money with you. One day you're going to die, and you can't take those clothes with you. It's like what we were talking about this morning. Some things in this world are not important, and I'd rather just have the blessing of God. Amen. Verse twenty-eight, or verse twenty-nine, and the king of Ai. I'm sorry, verse twenty-three. And they took them out of the midst of the tent, and brought them unto Joshua and unto all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. I want you to understand that Joshua's sin did not just affect him, it affected those around him. Verse 24. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold. But notice, it doesn't end there. And his sons. And his daughters. And his oxen, and his asses, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and burned them with fire, after they had stoned them with stones. Why? Why did 32 men have to die? Why did 32 women have to mourn the deaths of their husbands? Why did children have to mourn the deaths of their fathers? Why did Achan's sons and daughters, and we can even assume from Scripture that his wife and everyone in his family died? You need to understand this. Sin does not only affect you, it affects everyone around you. Well, I can live in sin, and I can live in this, and I can live in that, and it's not going to hurt my kids. It'll hurt your kids. 
It's not going to hurt the church. It'll hurt the church. In fact, let me prove it to you. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. We're almost done, but I just want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, in the New Testament, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you got the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. Look at verse number 1. This is what the Apostle Paul said. The Apostle Paul said, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. You know what the word fornication means? It means to have a physical relationship with someone before marriage. It means you're having a physical relationship to someone that you're not married to before you're married. This is what Paul said. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication as it is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Notice he said, this is what Paul said, you know what I heard about your church? There's some kid running around, living in fornication, not ashamed of it, not embarrassed by it, just everybody knows it's all out in the open. And he says, instead of you taking care of the issue, he said, and taking them away from among you, he said, you guys are puffed up and you think it's a-okay. Look at verse 2. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one. This is what Paul said. To deliver such an one unto Satan. Isn't that interesting? Paul said, I'm going to pray that Satan gets a hold of this guy. Here's why. For the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Paul said, I'm going to pray that Satan grabs this guy and literally destroys his body if it means that we can redeem his soul. That's a far cry from what you and I think Christianity is today. Look at verse 5. To deliver such an one unto Satan for destruction of the flesh, for the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lot. You know what leaven is? I don't know what it is. <laughs> I mean, I, I have an idea of what it is, but I'm not a baker. But the leaven, you know, it's, it's yeast. It's what causes bread to rise. And here's the thing with leaven. A little leaven, like the Bible says, will leaven the entire lot. And Paul was saying this, Paul was saying, you know, you have open, wicked sin in your church. He said, if you don't deal with it, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Now, I don't know if you know this, I, I, I've been thinking about, and I think I'm going to, just preach an entire sermon on the subject of fornication, because I don't think we really understand how much God hates fornication. You know that in the Bible, God literally sent plagues and killed thousands of people because of fornication. Because of people that were not married having physical relationships. And I know that this is not popular today and people don't like it. Because today, today in our society, it's just normal to fornicate. It's normal to live with someone when you're not married to them. It's normal to have physical relationship with someone you're not married to. In fact, if you, you know, think that you ought to uh, uh, be a virgin until the day of your marriage, the, the world will look at you and say you're weird. They'll say you're, you're peculiar. They'll say you're, you're an alien. You're, that's, that's weird. You know, that's not cool. God says that you ought to be pure until the day of your wedding. Period. End of story. 
And, and you say, well, well why, do you, why should we preach about it? Because a little leaven leavened up the whole lot. People come to this church and they think they're just going to flaunt their sin. Well, look at this and look at that. I'm living in fornication. Hey, don't come in here showing off your sin so that my kids can think, oh, that's normal. That's just what everybody does. No, that's not what everybody does. A little leaven will destroy the entire church. You say, well, if you preach like this, Pastor, your church will never grow. Hey, if we have open sin in the church, it'll never grow. If we just allow people to come in here and look, I'm all for loving people and I'm all for having grace and I'm all for helping people. But when there's open sin, we can't just stand back and say, well, whatever. There's sin in the camp. That was the problem with the children of Israel. And we can pray and say, God, send us people and send us laborers and help us reach our community. But God says, get off your face and take care of the problem. It's a sin in your life. That's the issue. Why, why couldn't the children of Israel take over Ai? It was a small city. Because of sin. Because of the individual's effect on the group. Let me ask you a question. What effect are you having on our group? Hey, what effect do you have on Verity Baptist Church? Is it positive or negative? And by the way, let me say this. You say, well, you hate people that are living in fornication. You hate people that are living together and not, not, not married. I don't hate those people. Look, you say, well, what do we do? People always ask me, well, what do we do? Like, it's really hard, complicated. Stop it. <laughs> See, I'm living with someone. I'm not married to them. Then marry them. And, and by the way, don't marry them nine months from now. You're living with them. Either marry them tomorrow. I mean, go down to the justice of the peace and get a piece of paper and commit to that and say you're married or move out. Period. I'm just sorry. That's it. It's not that complicated. So you can't preach that today. You can't tell people that. I'd rather have two or three people that love God and are actively trying to get the sin out of their life. They have 500 people here, but they're all living in sin. Say, how are we going to do it? In one accord, coming together. Here's a question. Is your participation, or lack thereof, keeping God's blessing from our church? Hey, is your sin keeping God's blessing from our church? Are you an Achan? Here's what's interesting about Achan. Joshua didn't know that Achan was a problem. See, Joshua wasn't wrong when he was praying, because he didn't know what the problem was. I wonder... Is it what you're looking at on the computer that's withholding God's sin, God's blessing from our church? Is it the things you do when no one's looking? Is it the sin you've got hidden under a tent somewhere and nobody knows about it? Is that withholding God's blessing? Are you an Achan? Well, what do we do, Pastor? Get rid of the sin. Let's get together in one accord. And just let's live for God. It's not that complicated. It's not that hard. Let's just live for God. Say, well, do we hate those people? We love those people. That's why we preach these things. Because we love. Look, anybody would tell you. Any, any adult that has any sense in their head would tell a young person, would tell a young teenager, don't ruin your life sexually. It's just going to bring despair and hurt. You know what the best thing is in a marriage? For a man and a woman to never know anyone else. And only know each other. You say, Pastor, I already messed up. Then just stop now. And live for God. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord, so much. Thank you for our church. And Lord, we thank you that there is still a church in Sacramento that is going to preach your word. And Lord, I know it's not popular. I know it's not what people want to hear. This isn't what draws the crowds. But it's your word. Father, I pray you'd bless it. 
Lord, I pray you deal with our hearts tonight. If there's secret sin that we don't know about, I don't, we don't need to know about it. We just need to take care of it. I pray you'd help everyone, including myself, to look in our hearts. To clean our hearts from sin that might keep the blessing of God away. And Father, also, that you would help everyone to just decide, you know what, I'm going to get in this thing. I'm not just going to let two or 3,000 go out and do the soul winning. I'm going to get in that fight and do it too. I'm not just going to let a few people support the church financially. I'm going to be faithful with my finances and get in that too. I'm not just going to let a few people, you know, be the ones that are faithful to the services. I'm going to be faithful in one accord. Father, I pray you give us that victory. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's take our...